Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm uh, Anthony Painter. I'm Chief Research and Impact Officer at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. Um, I'm delighted to have the chance to talk today to the authors of A Planet to Win, uh, Why We Need a Green New Deal, and I'll briefly introduce um, before introduce them before we get started. So we've got... Um, Thea Riafrancos, um, who's an assistant professor of political science at Providence College. Um, she's an Andrew Carnegie Fellow and a Radcliffe Institute Fellow, whose research focuses on resource extraction, renewable energy, green technology, and social movements. We've got Daniel um, Aldana Cohen, um, who's an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative. Um, and specialises in the politics of climate change and its intersections with housing, political economy and class and race injustice and inequalities. Um, we have um, Alicia Battistoni, who's a political theorist and environmental fellow at the Harvard University Centre for the Environment. Um, she's working on topics related to environmental politics, political economy and feminist thought. And we have Kate Aronoff, um, who's a journalist covering climate and US politics. She's a staff writer at the New Republic, uh, a fellow at the Type Media Center, and a senior fellow at the Data for Progress. Now together they've written A Planet to Win. Um, it's a powerful and optimistic manifesto that envisages a world that could be changed by a radical green uh, new deal that outlines the political and societal steps to get there. They call for a, effectively a new political economy and it combines radical action uh, on the climate with a major new role for government, almost as a director of the economy, combating inequality and steering investment into poorer and racialized communities in the process. So there's quite a lot for us to get through at a critical juncture and transfer of power uh, in the US, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but just for the audience benefit, there's been lots of talk about Green New Deals for uh, you know, at least at least a decade now in many different forms. Um, what are the critical elements of the Green New Deal that um, you're proposing? Um, thanks, Anthony. It's so great to be here. I'll just maybe kick us off really briefly and we'll want to hear from my co-authors. But I think much like kind of um, Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, um, we see the Green New Deal as being about massive public investment to slash carbon emissions and attack inequalities at the same time. We share this idea that everyone should have access to a job if they want it, a jobs guarantee, disproportionate investment in frontline um, communities and you know, the, the construction of a green care economy where everyone is, is taken care of with universal services. Um, I think where we add sort of a, a twist to it are, are a few areas um, that, are, that are not as present necessarily in some of the mainstream discourse. One of them is we wanna really reduce the resource intensity of prosperity. We don't wanna have the green good life in countries of the global North at the expense of the global South. So we think, think a lot about things like temples of public luxury, whether it's in terms of transit um, or housing or healthcare or you, know, you name it. So there's a real form of international solidarity and that's kind of cashed out in the effort to construct a really, really good life in the US or that could be in the North, but again, in solidarity with struggles in the South, not at the expense of the rest of the um, world. And then I think the second thing is we're really interested in short-term concrete projects, not just a vision for 2050, not even just a vision for 2030, but a sense of the things to be fighting for like tomorrow, since um, so much of the climate conversation is stuck so far into the future 
that it doesn't actually have much relevance for the for the everyday. I'll just add on a, a bit to that and, and stay on the theme of, of what we kind of bring to the Green New Deal conversation that's often absent from kind of mainstream discussions, which is uh, a really kind of ambitious and broad role for the public sector and thinking about, you know, ownership as this key pivot of, of how energy decisions are made, right? So we talk about nationalizing the fossil fuel sector um, and holding, um, holding oil executives accountable, but we also talk about public ownership, you know, for renewable powered utilities, right? And so thinking about public ownership, about worker ownership and other forms of community ownership as being key to, to the transitional kind of moment. Um, I was just gonna add one more note, which is um, what I think is really important about our vision of the Green New Deal is that it really is, um, I think a departure from, from previous climate visions and that it's really trying to build a popular climate movement and, and through these kinds of public investment that Daniel and Thea have mentioned um, to, to, um, to make climate action appealing to people, to, to deliver concrete benefits in the present rather than sort of like imagining um, benefits in the future and sacrifices in the present um, that can really make climate action seem like something that will improve people's lives um, uh, in the here and now when people, when people need it and, and therefore build a constituency for future action, which I think is something we um, often haven't seen in climate politics. So it's that scale and there's a fierce urgency of, of, of now. And um, I, I think we might as well go to the obvious starting point for the, for the, for the rest of our conversation, which of course is the, um, the, the Biden presidency in the week of the uh, inauguration. Um, uh, Kate, I know you've written a lot about the, um, the, the, the politics of the primary campaign heading into election proper and then the presidency of um, Biden itself. You know, in, 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 in light of that sort of radical proposition of what a Green New Deal should and could be, and going back to the points made um, by, by Daniel about the need for um, urgent and concrete action and not back-ending some of the action that we need to confront the climate emergency, where, where is the Biden presidency sitting in, it, in this time? We know obviously they're going to sign up back up to the, the Paris Climate Agreement and so on and so forth, but it needs a lot more, doesn't it? And where, where do you think that the presidency will be on that? I'll start with the good news, uh, which is, is not the entirety of it, uh, which, is, which is that Joe Biden did run on, on the most ambitious climate platform of any presidential candidate, candidate in US history. That bar is quite low, uh, granted, but you know, in contrast to the Obama administration, which came in and said it didn't wanna spend more than a trillion dollars on a recovery, uh, Biden pledged to spend $2 trillion just on a green stimulus, right? And so investing directly in communities on the front lines of environmental injustice, uh, huge build outs of green infrastructure, you know, things that are, 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 are pretty uncontroversially good for the most part. Um, so that's good news, right? And we've seen climate talked about in a way that it really hasn't been in US politics, particularly, you know, through debates, um, through the primary, especially where candidates were competing with one another to see who could spend more trillions of dollars. So all that is, is good news and, and really a testament to the, the strength of the climate movement, both in the US through things like the Sunrise Movement, but also the school strikes in, in Europe and you know, this real upswing of, of interest in, in, in this that, that builds on you know, decades of, of organizing. So, so all of that is good. Um, the thing that you know, I think we, we would all agree is that nothing is going to happen without a huge push from below, right? Joe Biden has not historically been on the right side of history 
um, whether, you know, there, there are things in his record that, that I think are big causes for concern and things he said, right, in, in the past um, several weeks, even, you know, leading up to his inauguration that um, are cause for concern, sort of holding out hope for some kind of, um, you know, mythical bipartisan compromise with the GOP that has absolutely no interest, you know, in, in compromise. So I think there's a lot of work to be done uh, to, to really push the, the Biden administration. We've seen some, some cause for optimism, both in campaign pledges and um, the appointments related to climate change are some of the, you know, more on the more progressive end of the spectrum. I wouldn't call them progressive, certainly not on the left, um, whatever, you know, the GOP might say. Um, but I, I think, you know, a Biden administration is, is at least interested in doing this in a, in a way that um, past administrations haven't been, and the, the climate movement, which I think is the, the bigger piece of this picture, is stronger than it was, right? This is not 2008. Um, there have been movements building, you know, both on climate directly and, you know, popular movements more generally, from Occupy Wall Street to the movement for Black Lives to the resistance to fossil fuel infrastructure coming largely from indigenous communities. We've seen this huge upwelling of social movement energy that I think is going to bear really heavily uh, on a Biden administration. And I'll just say one thing to, to kind of wrap up, which is that I think one of the more hopeful signs we've seen from the Biden administration is, is really letting go of this idea that deficits should, should determine um, how good people's lives can be, right? That, that the sort of size of the, of the debt uh, of the US government, uh, which is its own sort of fictional thing, uh, is you know, the, the, the end of the line for, for any progressive policy. So. I think that that is something that's that sort of austerity mindset is falling out of favor with U.S. policymakers. It's a really good sign for for climate. What where are others on on this on this Biden question? I mean, what what, what sort of things should we be looking out for that are that, that are going to be put in place? Is it the scale of the investment? Is it the uh, is it the rhetoric? Is it going to some some of the more sort of more radical ends of, of, of the plan, which is to start to buy out the fossil fuel companies and so on and divestment and so on and so forth. What, what should we be looking out for? How do we know he's on the right lines? Well, maybe I'll just pick up on some of the good news piece from, from Kate here. I mean, it, it's, Kate said the bar is low. What we're fighting over, hopefully with Biden, based on things he's been saying just in the last few days is how the green stimulus will be spent. So I think we need to get to in a minute the question of how to dismantle the fossil fuel industry where Biden is not being particularly aggressive at all. But in terms of spending, that's huge. That means that we're now not talking about mobilizing over the shape of a carbon price over who is gonna deal with this form of like market austerity, but instead we're fighting over how will green stimulus funds be spent. And that means instead of an argument about, oh, what kind of person should be turning off the lights when, when they leave the room, it's like, okay, how can we get the maximum number of the trillions that he's putting on the table into low-income housing retrofits and new green affordable housing, which Biden has promised, you know, how many schools can we retrofit to be energy efficient, healthy, green, where students themselves are learning about this like new economy? How many electric buses can we put on the streets? And that means I think then that come 20, even 2022, the next elections or organizing campaigns in communities, we're not just pointing to PowerPoints uh, for examples of what a Green New Deal can look like, but we can point down the street and say, this is the kind of thing we're talking about, but now we need more and faster. And in the book, we talk about that like ratchet-like quality we're gonna need to do this is year after year, pointing to concrete victories and then organizing um, around them. So again, there's a lot to, the, to dislike about where Biden I think is going, but the mere fact of green stimulus being on the table, the potential for money to land in communities in the next year or two 
is again, you know, leagues ahead of where we were uh, at any point in US politics. You know, even Obama himself coming in with a carbon pricing policy as his initial and failed effort to, to deal with, with climate. Um, I, I agree with everything that um, Danielle and Kate have said about some of the, the causes for optimism and where we should be fighting. I want to pick up on sort of the, um, the maybe problem side that Danielle hinted at and the um, point about taking on the fossil fuel industry. And I think that this is something that we really need to um, you know, be talking about and thinking about um, in general, but in this moment in particular. And, you know, to be honest, this is someplace where even the Green New Deal resolution fell short. It didn't really say very, it didn't say anything at all about um, taking on the fossil fuel industry. And it is, um, I think has been seen as sort of a third rail often um, as something that will, uh, you know, if you take on the fossil fuel industry, you're attacking fossil fuel workers and jobs and you're like a job killer and all of that. Um, but right now, um, I mean, there's, I guess, two points. One is we obviously know we need to take on the fossil fuel industry um, in, a, in a serious way, because uh, you can build out green energy, but if you're not stopping um, fossil fuel extraction and use, it doesn't, um, that's that's not going to offset it. I mean, we saw a huge growth of green energy uh, under Obama and also um, the US become the largest oil and gas producer. So those things can go together. Um, but uh, we also are in a moment of huge opportunity to really, um, I would say, kick the fossil fuel industry while it's down, particularly in the United States. Um, the, you know, uh, the fracking industry expanded um, very quickly with cheap credit, as a lot of Kate's reporting has shown. Um, and they are uh, right now, I mean, they, they need oil prices to be high uh, to be profitable. They've um, Oil prices have been very low this year. Um, so a lot of oil and uh, Gas companies have gone bankrupt in the U.S. over the course of the year. 100,000 fossil fuel workers in the U.S. are out of work right now. Um, this is a really good chance to give, you know, to move those people into green jobs, um, to show them that when the fossil fuel industry, which is really volatile and not a source of steady employment, um, is is on the downswing, um, you know, there is a place for them to go. That there's that there's like uh, a just transition, which is sort of the the model that environmental and labor groups have talked about for a long time, is actually possible um, and can happen right now. So it's a really good, I think, chance to, to sort of um, shift some of that, um, some support uh, for the uh, for fossil fuel industry amongst workers and communities that depend on that industry away um, and, to, and to really undercut the power of um, what has been historically a very powerful industry that now is really struggling, um, that's facing, uh, I think, a global shift in financial institutions. Um, uh, that is potentially really going to have repercussions on the road, um, but which we, if Biden doesn't take on, I think we're going to see sort of potential for the right to pick up and run with that in the same way that Trump did with the war on coal. So I would really say like we have to face this head on, use this opportunity um, and not let the right use it as an instance to bash um, Biden as like a, a killer of the, the oil industry. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because when I was reading your book, it was almost like sort of reading through a split screen. On 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 one hand, there was this sort of uh, radical, often persuasive, exciting um, set of propositions. Some might even say sort of idealistic in in many respects. On the other on the other side of the split screen, I had in view sort of American politics and a very polarized democratic society, and the, even the most recent elections obviously demonstrate that vividly. And events since. Um, in, including quite tragic events uh, since that 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 time, to to move and shift at this sort of scale, 
you sense that you need a society that has a, a, a strong solidaristic consensus to move things quickly enough. And I was just wondering whether I could see that or whether you can see that somewhere in American society with enough, enough force and energy to shift the, shift the agenda at the pace it needs to go. Fear, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on yeah, I think that that's a great uh, question and, and way to pose it. And, and I think that, you know, there is a way that our book is a bit bipolar on that on that front. Um, um, but um, I think that the vac the the pandemic moment and the vaccine moment and also like the forms of economic stimulus as as insufficient as they've been that we've gotten, I, I kind of you could draw some positive lessons there at the same time that there's lots of concerning lessons to draw. Um, but I'll, I'll stay on the positive front for a moment, I think that we do see broad public support for uh, the government to directly intervene to help with people's economic well-being, right? And, and in fact, we know that that support is broad, not just from opinion polls and political reporting that interviews people, but also from the fact that Republicans have been really concerned about their political futures if they don't support some of these you know, economic um, uh, measures, especially the two that were running and lost in Georgia, right? The, the, Senate, the Republican mm -hmm. Senate candidates. So I think we see that there's broad support for, for the government to provide for economic welfare in this moment of crisis. There's also, you know, broad support for the vaccine. I don't want to downplay that, you know, there's a lot of anti-vax and anti-mask and et cetera movement out there, but most Americans are like really want the vaccine and are waiting for it and are excited for it. And also I think maybe have seen the role for the state in, in propelling innovation in a really fast way, right? So these are some positive lessons that if we actually play them up in our organizing and our messaging, you know, in our writing, like could actually be kind of at the forefront um, when we are shifting now rapidly, hopefully, to, to dealing with climate change as, as the primary um, crisis on the table. I would also just say um, that uh, I think I think a lot of climate um, writing on climate politics has a kind of split screen um, perspective in that um, often, I, in some ways, I think we're flipping the usual valence of that where there's a, it's an existential threat and then the answer is like a carbon tax as Daniel was suggesting before. There's some very minor, um, like one, one quick fix to solve the climate crisis, which is going to destroy all of human and non-human life on earth. So there's, um, that is a disjuncture that I felt many times in reading uh, climate, you know, research or about climate politics. And um, I think what it speaks to, and I think what the sort of disjuncture in our book speaks to is the fact that um, the things that we know have to happen to avert the worst of the crisis do not seem immediately politically possible. And I would say probably are not immediately politically possible. So I think what we're trying to do in the book is lay out um, a not completely utopian, but like something that we think is actually concretely realizable, but will actually take a lot of political shifting and trying to think about places that we could start um, making the inroads on the politics. Because I think if you're gonna, <laughs> if the choice is between like changing, um, changing the politics or changing like the biophysical status of the earth. Like, you know, one of those is 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 um, changing very fast right now. And one of them is one that we have to figure out how to shift <laughs> um, to, uh, you know, if we're going to if we're going to even get close to some of um, the what we what we know are the targets we need to to prevent um, really catastrophic effects on the road. So it is it is a real like there is a real juncture, but I think we're trying to, to approach it from a how do we move the politics rather than um, <laughs> than than uh, saying the politics will determine what we can what we can do um or what what amount of warming will happen yeah that's really that's really usefully usefully put thank you but I, I wonder whether whether the, the, the covid crisis and the climate crisis 
are, are different at some sort of fundamental personal level. Um, you know, COVID obviously is something which there is a felt sense of personal threat. Now, of course, you know, if you're in a community that's just been affected by, by wildfires in Northern California, you might have that same sense of threat from, from the climate emergency, but it's not generalized in the, in the same way, perhaps. And I, I agree with, with, with both of you. I think what this moment has shown us is suddenly, you know, that there is, we have had an experience of government without limits, almost limitless government in terms of finance, ability to move, ability to move technologies, innovate, you know, galvanize response and so on and so forth, you know, effective or not effective and we've, we've all had experience of governments that have had been effective in some respects and, and very ineffective um, in, in, in others but I just wonder whether the fundamental structure of the, the nature of crisis is, is, is different so that, that political disjunction, that political moment, that political energy might be denied to the Green New Deal in a way that it wasn't to the response to Covid. I can, I can jump in on this, I mean I think one of the big differences between the COVID crisis and the climate crisis is that the COVID crisis hit the developed world first. I mean, the, the wealthy, wealthy sort of northern countries were some of the first to be to be really hit, hit hard, which is not, you know, the has not been the case for the climate crisis, right, where uh, the countries with the least responsibility for generating um, the, you know, vast, vast majority of emissions are uh, are more insulated, right, than, than the countries with the least responsibility. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that, that really sticks in mind. In terms of the political response, I mean, I, I, I guess it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag. I mean, Thea, Thea talked about the, the sort of, you know, very mixed bag of lessons um, to, draw, to draw out from this. I think the one thing that, you know, I have taken some solace in from the last several months is that I think we really are doing away with the old nostrums of, of austerity and, you know, all this talk of debt to GDP ratios, I think is really starting to sound um, as absurd as it should have sounded, you know, for the last 40 years, um, but but is now sort of rendered, you know, really out in the open as being a, a real relic of, of, a, of a much older, really outdated way of thinking, if it, you know, ever, ever held any weight at all. And so I think there's more willingness for, you know, big government for the sorts of big, you know, mobilizations that, that we've seen in, in, in different countries. Um, and I think that the flip side of that is, particularly in the US, which I imagine is similar in the UK, it's really put on blast how much lack of state capacity there is, right? You know, we see spending a lot of money, countries are, you know, both, both the US and the UK um, have done big stimulus packages and we still just have these sort of administrative, uh, this administrative rot that, that is, is, is really holding back. You know, I live in New York state and a fairly wealthy state is just fumbling vaccine rollout at every possible point. Um, and, and so, you know, I think there's a real opportunity there that, that has big, could be big, bear a lot of fruit for the climate crisis um, to say, look, you know, we have invested wrongly. Our priorities for the last 30 years have been to put more people in cages, to, you know, build up the parts of the state, the defense department um, that are least well suited to keeping people alive. And we actually need to invest in, 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 in really helping people thrive. And, and you know, even just navigating sort of immediate crises like, like COVID has been difficult because of these skewed investment priorities. And so I think that is not, I'm not you know, so optimistic to say that that's inevitably going to happen, that that will be where the conversation goes. Um, but I think that there's a real opportunity to say, we need to really rethink uh, what it is that our uh, economy is for, what our you know, government is for and who it serves. 
Um, and I think you know that is the sort of core project of a, of a Green New Deal, right? Is to really rethink our social contract, which in the United States and you know many other places has been built on a really fractured fractured foundation, and, and we can you know start to start to rewrite parts of that. Yeah, interesting. I think in the case of COVID, our, our moonshot, which is the vaccine, has become a sort of one shot, and we better hope that it works. Um, my, my worry, I guess, is that when we come to the other end of it, is that kind of the, 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 the ability to respond as communities, as much as, as governments, may, may be very quickly forgotten and we may spring, spring back. But I guess that's the political fight and that's ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think um, anybody here would acknowledge that the conditions for tackling the climate crisis are not ideal. Like, let's say we would not want to have 30 to 50 years of neoliberal devastation of the public sector and then try to tackle a gigantic collective action problem. Um, but, you know, we have to do, we have to work with what we have. I mean, that's just the, the fact. So, I, you know, I think a couple of things. One is that the analogy to COVID would seem to be like extreme weather and pandemic. But I think the better analogy, especially in the Green New Deal framework, is more like extraordinary poverty, joblessness, and precarity, and then suffering the impacts of racial violence. You know, the most, the people in the United States who are the most worried about climate change are black people and Latinos actually, far more than white people. It's largely young people who have very dim economic prospects under the current um, order. And then when you look at who is like suffering economically, you know, almost half the country living paycheck to paycheck, a third of Americans can't afford their utility bills in crisis from their utility payments, tens of millions of Americans paying a third or half their income in, in housing payments. I mean, there's an enormous, as Kate was saying, need for some kind of like new social contract. So you have that on the one hand, it's just this grinding material problem, especially afflicting younger people who are getting more and more politically organized. And then on the other hand, you have a green economy, which looks nothing like it did 10 years ago. And I think part of what the book is about is like going with the grain of green capital, but taking a more progressive democratic uh, lens on it. But you know, the fact that wind and solar are now cheaper than fossil fuels does make it a lot easier to pass a Green New Deal. You know, we're not talking about subsidizing in a massive way a new economy. What we're talking about is accelerating a shift that would already happen. Um, in the US, we're like doddering behind the World Economic Forum with the International Energy Agency or the Davos crowd or even someone like Boris Johnson. I mean, the UK has been on green capitalism for, for years now. So I think in a lot of ways, you have a large number of people who are miserably situated in the US in terms of just their everyday economic conditions. And then on the other hand, you have just a transformation in global capitalism towards green technology. And I think what we're hoping for is a combination of that progressive energy, technological change, and a kind of new social contract where we're radically um, democratizing the economy, improving people's income security, and taking out carbon emissions at the same time, and doing so on a technological basis that is, at this point, very well established. You know, the foundation's been dug. We're, we're ready to go here. And you, you couldn't have said that in the aftermath even of the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, people for decades have been saying we have all the technology we need, we just lack the political will. It's not really true. The technology has improved a lot. That puts us in a much better situation. I think it's less a fight. Do we tackle climate change or not? It's how fast do we tackle climate change and like how equitably do we tackle climate change with how much social justice and how much of that transition is being led from below rather than being led by, frankly, the 1%. Which takes us back to the Biden presidency and why it's so important, doesn't it? Because the thing about economic insecurity, it can it, it can spark two different responses. There's the, the Black and Latino communities that you're describing, you obviously feel a sense of um, uh, exclusion, injustice and vulnerability. Uh, and so may well embrace 
politics, climate politics, and social justice quite quite readily, you might expect. But there are other communities, you know, the the, the, the sort of stereotypical communities in West Virginia or so on, who, as a response to economic insecurity, may actually feel a sense of status anxiety and may actually start to really, really kick back. And so the Biden presidency becomes an important mechanism to, to reassure some of those who you need on board with this coalition that this can be meaningful for them and their communities, and they have nothing to fear from this agenda. And I'll say quickly, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think that there is some, you know, the, the Black and Latino components of the Democratic Party coalition are very strong, where we're, the Democratic Party is very weak, is often in rural and in some cases poor white areas, um, and has not definitely won the argument in a lot of fossil fuel areas that they have the best economic rescue plan. But I think to your point, that is the opportunity now to expand the coalition, to think about green investment and also, you know, and I'll, I think Alyssa can talk more about this, like the care economy as a really viable alternative to the fossil fuel sector, which is just a horrible boom town up and down, which has never really been particularly good. It's not like Appalachia was like living in the good times 10 or 15 or 30 or 80 years ago. Um, so I think you're, it is true that not only does the Biden campaign have to deliver for its own base, it actually has to deliver for folks who voted uh, the other way. Um, a lot of Biden's campaign's base is, is white suburban affluent people, and we worry about them. But we do have to grow the coalition, and green investment could be the ticket to it. Yeah, on the, I'll just pick on what Daniel said about sort of the, the care economy piece. And in the book, we talk about um, both the sort of traditional view of green jobs as like um, kind of green hard hat jobs and, um, and infrastructure and green energy and so on. And those really seem to be at the forefront of um, Biden's like green jobs plan so far. He talks a lot about infrastructure. Um, it does seem like the kind of bill that would be most likely to pass um, uh, a bare majority Democratic Senate um, would be some kind of infrastructure bill. Joe Manchin has sort of signaled that he would support something like that. Joe Manchin being, of course, the um, you know, relatively conservative Democratic senator from West Virginia, who has um, often been an opponent of um, big kind of climate projects. Um, but uh, so, so some kind of infrastructure bill seems possible. But again, that's kind of a um, you know within this um, the usual view of like um, green jobs as as building out um, the green energy infrastructure, which obviously is very important. But um, we also talk about how we need to think beyond that and about like. The low carbon economy um, that that already exists and we should expand and, and um, the care economy is a really important part of that and i'll just say um, in places like west virginia that um, uh, the care economy is already more significant to a lot of um, a lot of people's livelihoods and a lot of households livelihoods than um, than coal um, coal has been you know long before climate appeared on the picture coal companies were um, you know, mechanizing uh, jobs, we're automating jobs, um, we're moving jobs out elsewhere. Like it was, um, it was already uh, an unstable source of employment, and in in that the place of that um, has has um, grown uh, the healthcare industry. Um, a lot of households that used to be dependent on like the sort of male coal miner are now dependent on um, a female um, healthcare worker. Um, so I think that, I mean, that's already a shift again that's happening, but I think this is a really, this is obviously, I think, a moment when we're all attuned to the importance of care for a good life and care is something that I think is um, um, a low carbon form of low carbon work and low carbon life improvement that we should really be expanding. And that also addresses um, a really important gender equity piece. Um, you know, a huge amount of the job losses, um, loss of COVID have been um, uh, jobs that women have lost. Um, the most recent jobs report, almost all of the job losses were um, women losing jobs. And um, 
you know, the the jobs that the Biden green spending associated career are probably jobs that are gonna go to men. That is like not the, that's not obviously the main thing. Um, we don't need to say like, we shouldn't spend money because men will get these jobs. But I think we do need to think about how are we um, not watching a huge amount of, um, watching a huge retrenchment of, of um, you know, women's position in, um, in the workforce and so on. And just one thing to add to that quickly um, and bring it back to the political kind of calculus that was also part of the, the question is that I think we very much see the most militant and progressive uh, forces within the broader labor movement in the in care sectors, right? We had multiple waves of, of teacher strikes in the US, we had waves of nursing strikes and of service worker strikes. And we haven't really seen something similar in, you know, either the extractive or manufacturing sectors, um, which are also obviously much smaller, as, as Alyssa said, in terms of the total amount of workers. So we have these sectors that overrepresent in women, overrepresent in immigrants, overrepresent in women of color, and they also happen to be the sectors that are not only strike ready and militant, but are also their unions have, in many cases, embraced elements or, in fact, you know, have resolved to support the Green New Deal as a whole. So, you know, it's also thinking about where is that worker energy that we know from all the lessons of history is necessary to kind of ram through transformative change. Uh, while we need to very much attend to a just transition for extractive workers, we don't expect them to be on the front lines of demanding a Green New Deal, right? We expect them to be kind of at the negotiating table with how we're gonna preserve your economic well-being. Um, but I think the folks that will be on those sort of front lines of the labor movement for green economy will be care workers and, and service workers. Looking back at the sort of New Deal from a historical perspective, I, I, I guess this, I'm sure is a gross oversimplification, but I'll go with it anyway. Um, there, there were two phases to it in reality. I mean, th th there was phase one, which was response to depression, which was an, an attempt obviously to get the economy back on track and create work and rebalance American society. Obviously that, that was deeply invested in a, in a broader progressive tradition, you know, going, going back to the first Roosevelt president. Um, and, and, and before, but it was about rebalancing and, and resuscitating in many respects, rather than a, than a radical direction, directional shift. Um, but the, the second New Deal obviously was related to the, 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 the Second World War, and you, you referenced this in, uh, um, in, in the book, where the, the public sector directs investment, coordinates production as much as it did during World War II. Um, it, you know, the, the footprint of government in this in this vision would expand massively in the caring economy, as you described, the industrial economy, financial economy, the cultural economy. It would also have a huge role in directing uh, finance and consumption. Now, you, you don't have to be a, a libertarian to see an enormous expansion in the power of power of government in this in, in, in this context. And you can you can start to feel just a slightly nervous that this might have unforetold, unforeseen consequences. Are there elements of this that even, even as advocates that, that you have a degree of nervousness with? I might start off by just reframing it a little bit, which is to say that I think as Kate, as Kate suggested before, it's not necessarily, I mean, it is an expansion of the state in, in major areas, but it's also a redirection of the state. So state didn't, you know, I don't think we should think of neoliberalism as, as only the shrinking of the state. Um, but also as the expansion of, um, you know, in the U.S., certainly the carceral state, um, the, you know, defense spending um, and the sort of defense, uh, I mean, the military arm of the state has not shrunk. Um, there's, you know, and the state obviously has 
continue to play a major role in you know shaping markets and contracts and all of these things that that even the free market needs. So um, I guess I wouldn't say that I think that um, it's it's like bringing the state in where the state wasn't before. It's it's redirecting the state um, away from I think we would say places that. Um, where where a huge amount of investment has been in um, you know locking people up in this country um, and towards things that are uh, you know meeting people's needs and trying to, to um, that we think are that we think are positive functions of the state. Um, there will be disagreement over what those are, and I think that there is actually quite a. I'm I'm quite worried about. I suppose I'm I'm less worried at the moment about um, the overreach of the state than about the. Um, the sort of quite intense anti-state um, far right in this country, which I think will um, see a state overreach <laughs> where very little state exists, that any state action is state overreach. And so um, I'm, I, I feel like we have a pretty long way to go actually before we, we get to that point. Um, and, you know, I don't say that, I guess, to, to dismiss concerns about, um, you know, to say that like the state should just run everything and there's no problems there and there's nothing to worry about. We try to sort of give some instances of places where, um, you know, state uh, decision-making, you know, like state funding, the decision-making about spending can be devolved to community level um, uh, projects and things like that. Um, and I think that is really important, but I, I, I feel like the really imminent problem is, is the perception of, of any amount of state um, state spending, state, um, I guess, obvious state control, because as I'm saying, there, there has, the, the state is working even where you don't see it. And it's, it's often um, sort of uh, people, people don't always sort of perceive state action um, where it actually exists, but um, that, that any amount of um, state intervention will be perceived as this like totalitarianism um, and will, will garner a really, um, intense and potentially violent response. And so I'm quite concerned about that. Yeah, yeah I, I would just add, add on quickly about that. Is I, I think something that we, um, we really try to draw out in the book is that we wanna democratize the state as well, right? I think the state is like a big header can, can be a bit misleading because it refers to so many different things and so many moving parts and organizations and you know, groupings of people. Um, and you know, the, the New Deal is, and the New Deal sort of order stretching into the World War II is a, is a really, complicated thing to understand and you know our, our book is 100 pages so so we will not you know provide every answer to that um, but but something that I you know think is a, a really positive lesson from um, particularly the, the later New Deal um, and the agricultural New Deal is, is a real focus on, on kind of bottom-up democracy right and so you had programs sort of designed in town halls and and, and sort of funding decisions made and, and, and planning decisions made at the very local level uh, and and trying to really enlist people and build a democratic political political economy and that wasn't you know the the, the entirety of the new deal certainly um, but there were sort of elements of, of trying to really think about what does it look like for communities to design their own recovery what does it look like for uh, you know, the state to really leverage resources toward people who are coming up with their own plans. If you think about something like the Rural, Rural Electrification Administration, um, right, that, you know, relied on making state resources and technical uh, assistance available to people to create their own uh, electric utilities, right, to string wires and, and put people to work and, and, you know, provide economic development in parts of the country which just didn't have electricity and that was holding them back from really, you know, participating in the 20th century. And, and so I think you can, you can 
pick and choose what your lessons are. And the most sort of like top down, uh, you know, defense state uh, aspects of the New Deal order, we don't necessarily want to replicate, but um, there's a lot of, of good in there to take out. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the real challenge, I think, is, is to make um, to make it something that, that is real for people, to make a Green New Deal something that people see in their lives and see how it's improving their lives. And as we said before, I think that's, you know, key to building the political support for it that can endure for, for you know, congressional terms to come uh, and, 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 you know, to, to really make the case for it as we go. It's one of the one of the the the, the, the cleverest elements of neoliberalism, wasn't it, that it hid an expansion of state power amidst a critique of the state, which is kind of kind of remarkable uh, in many respects. But of course, the other element of state power is on the international sphere. And um, I go back to the beginning of our conversation. The international dimension is something which you devote uh, a fair amount of attention to in this um, in 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 this book. And I, I guess as I was reading it, and it was. You know, it, it's fascinating to think about, you know, the resources and how that's tied to particular communities and the impacts on those. And we, you, you, you talk about um, the, the, the sort of Andean salt flats and lithium that obviously is, is critical for, for building uh, batteries, which are going to be so crucial to the, um, the, 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 the climate tran transition over, over the next decades. And I guess I was thinking in the background as I was reading it, well, we could set you know, standards that will enable those communities to have a say over those, how, how those resources are used, not just their governments, but those, those, those communities in a way that can make sense for them. And we can establish high social and environmental standards in all our international trade. But what to stop China coming along and doing a deal with, with XYZ government and then getting preferential access to, to those resources without those safeguards in place? Uh, yeah, well, I don't think we probably have immediate control over what what China does um, uh, or doesn't do, though. I think that, you know, the the effort of any government to sort of lift up standards of environment or, you know, uh, social or environmental rights um, is, is good. I mean, meaning like the race to the bottom is bad, right? So if we could, you know, somehow have competition over who can offer the best deal to communities, that, that would be a better terrain to be competing on. But, you know, I think this kind of brings us back to what we were talking about in terms of holding Biden accountable and where we see sort of gaps between the Biden administration and the, the vision that, that we're laying out. And I think a clear place for that is, is uh, global climate justice, right? So Biden says he'll rejoin the Paris agreements, but I think none of us are convinced that that will kind of like tend in the direction of, of something like substantive global justice. Um, you know, some of that is around, you know, a much more aggressive decarbonization. So I think first and foremost, what the U.S. needs to do to uh, to lift up communities around the world is massively curtail, you know, our emissions as quickly as possible, and then yeah. pair that with forms of global technological and financial redistribution so that countries around the world, especially in the global south, kind of have the means to, to, to confront climate change, which are currently hoarded um, by, the, by the global north. Um, and another that you mentioned is around like sort of rewriting trade agreements and making them actually fair and just and, and, and green and low carbon. But I want to also just pick up on something that Daniel said at the beginning of the conversation, which is, I think, you know, in addition to slashing emissions and rewriting trade rules, a big thing that the global north and the, and the US, you know, in particular can do is just reduce how resource intensive um, the low carbon transition is right and so instead of what is unfortunately Biden's vision, which is EVs for all, like everyone have an, a, an electric vehicle, we'll give you some rebates, we're gonna spur the manufacturing in the US, 
create jobs that way, um, which is a big chunk of his $2 trillion that, that Kate mentioned earlier, a big chunk of that, that climate um, green infrastructure plan. Um, and instead say, what if we you know, electrify public transit first or electrify you know, the federal fleet first or, or state fleets and kind of focus on transit options that actually move masses of people because they're less resource intensive and also you know thinking about experimenting with car free cities um you know people have gotten a little of a taste of something like that with covid and less traffic and i think you know the the uh, benefits are, are kind of obvious to safety and and air quality so you know just kind of pushing for um a vision of for example transit that doesn't rely on pulling massive amounts of quantities of minerals out of the earth i think is something that we should be fighting for in the u.s Thanks. Yeah, I, I'm, of course, totally in complete agreement with that. Let me try to connect a couple dots here, because this is actually where the state comes back in and maybe some counterintuitive ways that we get into a bit in the book. Like, we want to use fewer resources and live better. So what, you know, there's more efficient housing, more efficient transportation, but I think there's also creating the conditions of a good life that are not resource intensive. So like public recreation, one of the top five line items in the original New Deal, most of the best, like the best public swimming pools in New York City were built during the New Deal. I don't think people are like, oh, I'm swimming in state overreach over here, literally, right? <laughs> I mean, the splendor of public planning. Um, the New Deal, the worst progress administration funded things like Jewish dictionaries. I mean, Harry Hopkins, who led the WPA, was hauled in front of Congress. They were like, how are you wasting your money on this? And he's like, listen, rabbis are out of work. I think, uh, you know, dictionaries are the good things in life. And so we're funding it. And, you know, and, and we could go on and on and, and just give like example after example. But I think part of what, and, and Kate and Tia and Alyssa have all been talking about this, like we're not necessarily going to convince every single like fascist person who stormed the US Capitol that a Green New Deal is in their best interest. I don't, I think that would be naive. But what we can do, I think, is build uh, a, a form of living with all these massive public goods that we know historically tend to build coalitions and use that to glue together, like as Gramsci would call a historic block, a big progressive block that are really appreciative of this kind of public funding, have community control in many cases over how that you know, is, is delivered. And that then helps them to fight for more and more so that the anti-fascist strategy isn't just fetishizing, convincing every fascist that they actually agree with you, but it's building a big enough majority with like fight to them and with good material improvements to their everyday life that they are then going to kind of stand behind this program. And as Kate was alluding to earlier, you know, the New Deal coalition lasted decades. And although it was in many ways horribly racist, actually like what the civil rights movement was about was dismantling the racism of the New Deal compact, but they were not trying to get rid of public investment. They wanted more public investment. I mean, they wanted an anti-racist New Deal with a lot of con continuity with the idea of public investment in the economy. So I think what we're talking about now is a public investment driven transformation in many ways of everyday life for the better, clearly for the better. Not that we think we'll convince every single opponent of that, but that we'll make our team big enough, strong enough um, and passionate about it that we can then win over and over and over and really just change political paradigms. Brilliant. We could go on all, 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 all day. I have to say, it's 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 a fascinating book. I I, I enjoyed it so much, and and, and I think that uh, even though at times you know it, it falls at the edge and, and sometimes beyond of the, of of the possible, I don't think that's that's a weakness because we we know that we're in an environment where you look at the last last ten years where the, the political possibilities have widened so much. So you you've got to pitch for something that's going to work, that's going to be effective, and you know give the material to democracy to go as quickly as it can 
um, and we'll see how far we get. I guess is 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 probably the most hopeful note we can we can end up on. Um, thank you so much. Um, Planet to Win um, is is out now. Um, you can get information about where you hold a copy um, in the uh, where you get hold of a copy in the in the sidebar uh, chat um, and on the RSA events uh, social media. And do keep up with the RSA's channels for updates on further conversations like, like these, as well as fresh insights from our policy research teams and our regenerative futures programme, which looks at the interrelationship between the social transition alongside the climate uh, transition and information on how to get involved with the work of our global um, uh, fellowship. What is left for me to say is thank you again to um, Thea Ria Frankos, Kate Aronoff, Daniel um, Aldana Cohen and Alicia Battistoni. And thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.